0: When you found your place there, let's bow our heads before we begin our study. Our Father, we thank you for your word again, and it is before us. We thank you that we have a copy of it in our own language, that you have blessed us with uh, eyes to see in your word who you are, who Christ is, and we pray that through the preaching of your word that we would hear from you in the pages of Scripture this morning. May you be glorified through the response of your people as we offer our obedience and and our love and affection toward Christ we pray that you would instruct us in your word and we'll do a work in our hearts that only you can do. We thank you for your word, which is clear to us, and we pray that we would be able to see the application that you would have for us to make today, that you would be honored here through the preaching and teaching of your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we have worked our way through the Good Shepherd Discourse, and we've gotten out. We, we've gotten to the end of verse 18, which is the, the discourse proper, we should say. Now we are looking at verses 19 and following, which is the response to the discourse. And John kind of has this way in his gospel of, of giving us the words and the works of Jesus. And I've said before that John really revolves, the whole outline of the book of John revolves around the seven discourses and the seven signs of John's gospel, seven miracles and seven sermons. And those constitute the words and the works of Jesus in John's gospel. And woven into the words and the works of Jesus in John's gospel are these little clips where where we are given the response of the people to Jesus' words or to his works. So John kind of works this in. He'll he'll give us a sermon, and then he'll tell us how the people responded to it. And then he'll give us a sign and tell us how the people responded to it. And the reason for that is to confront us, as it were, with what our response should be to what we read about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And so we get this pattern all the way through as we read about the responses of the people. It either falls into one of two categories. Either belief, and I mean real, saving, genuine, regenerating faith in Jesus Christ belief, or unbelief, which includes people who think they believe in Jesus but have never really repented and were not trusting him fully, or it includes outright hostility to Jesus And unbelief also would include people who had positive opinions of Jesus, but never really truly embraced him for salvation to be born again. So you have belief and unbelief. And as we've worked our way through John's Gospel, we have seen examples of both belief and unbelief. Let me take you all the way back to John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus? What was the result or the response of Nicodemus to the new birth discourse? What did Nicodemus do? Ultimately, we don't know. It doesn't seem that he believed at that point, But at some point in John's gospel, he does believe because he comes out as a believer at the end of John's gospel. And then in John chapter 4, we have the woman at the well. She believed. The Samaritan village, they believed. The nobleman's son in chapter 4, he believed. John chapter 5, we have the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. He did not believe. He turned Jesus into the leadership. And then the Pharisees in John chapter 5, they did not believe. And then John chapter 6, the response to the discourse, the crowds, did they believe? No, they walked away from him. They said, we're not interested in the tough teaching. We wanted the free food. We thought it was all about a buffet. We didn't realize you were going to preach to us. And when Jesus preached, they left. And he was left with his disciples. His disciples believed, but not all the disciples. One of them was a devil, Judas. He didn't believe. And then in John chapter 7, we have the response of the crowd. They were divided. Some people defended him. Some people wanted to kill him. In John chapter 8, the Jews, the Pharisees, they wanted to stone him. In John chapter 9, the Jews rejected him and did not believe upon him. But one man believed, and that was the man who was born blind. He worshipped Jesus. And then in John chapter 10, we get another discourse, and now we get another response to the discourse in chapter 10. And we need to ask ourselves, do these people fall in the category of believers or unbelievers? And it's pretty easy to, to see what it is that John says about them. These are all clearly unbelievers. So here we have another example of unbelief, as a response to Jesus' teaching in the Good Shepherd Discourse. So we're going to look today at verses 19 through 21. Let's read it together first. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Now, what I love about John and the way he handles this is, as we look at the response to Jesus' teaching and to Jesus' deeds, what is interesting is the response them, the responses themselves are both instructive and fascinating. I find an incredible amount of fascinating stuff in these three verses, just as I look at the mindset of these men and how they responded to what Jesus taught, it is very instructive to us today to get get into their mindset and look at what it is that they said in response to what Jesus did. So let's notice, first of all, in verse 19, there was a division occurred, and you'll notice that John says, this division occurred again among the Jews. That's John's way of reminding us that there were other instances of division among the people, even in the immediate chronological context of what we're reading here. Do you remember last week I reminded you, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, a half of chapter 10, all take place within, at the maximum, a two-week period of time in the life of Jesus around the Feast of Tabernacles. There are other instances of division among the people in response to Jesus, and I want you to notice them just so you can see what John means when he says again. Turn back to John chapter 7, the beginning of John chapter 7 in verse 10. This is before the Feast of Tabernacles and before Jesus even got to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, the people already were galvanized in their opinions about Jesus of Nazareth. Because his fame had spread, people heard of his miracles, they heard of his teaching, And they heard that he was likely, or they expected that he was going to be at the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 10. When his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, but not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast. We find out from verse 1 it was because they wanted to kill him. The Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the people, the crowds concerning him. But some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Do you see the division? He's a good man. No, he's a false teacher. And the crowds were divided over who, of what type of a person Jesus was. Verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Look down at verse 40 of chapter 7. Verse 40, this is after Jesus declared in verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow flow rivers of living water, Verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Not only was there a division in the crowd because of Jesus, but look at verse 45, there was division amongst the leadership of the nation. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. By the way, that is a positive assessment of Jesus, which is why they didn't touch him. Verse forty six, the officers answered Oh sorry, verse forty seven, the Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. You have a division between the leadership and the temple police. Now look at verse 50. Now you have division even in the leadership. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search the scripture and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And there was a division even amongst the leadership. You had men like Nicodemus on one side who said, Let's give him a fair hearing. And then you had the Pharisees on the other side who said, What are you, a Galilean too? They did everything they could to blaspheme Jesus and to curse him. And now look at verse, chapter 9, verse 16. After the man was healed who had been born blind, this is the response to the leadership. Verse 16 of chapter 9, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So there was a division among the people. There was a division among the crowd. There was a division among the leadership of the nation. Here's what we are to understand, going back to John chapter 10, verse 19. Here's what we are to understand. This two-week period in the life of Jesus, it divided the entire city. Everybody had an opinion about Jesus. Amongst the crowds, there were all these little sects who had their own opinion about who Jesus was. And some of them vocalized it openly, but some of them said nothing in the presence of the leadership of the nation because the leadership had their own official assessment of Jesus, But the leadership itself was divided. You had most of the Pharisees thinking one thing. And some of the Pharisees, men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who said, let's give him a fair hearing. Let's not judge the man before we hear what he has to say and see what he has to do. Then let's assess him on the merits of what he says and what he does. So amongst the Pharisees, you have a division. Now in verse 19, this division existed again as a result of the Good Shepherd Discourse. So in the temple, you have the Pharisees there. Remember, the man who was born blind is there. The disciples are there. And Jesus is talking to them. The man who has been born has bowed down, been born blind, bowed down and worshiped Jesus. And then Jesus gives them the Good Shepherd discourse. And now you have the Pharisees falling into two camps. Some saying he's demon-possessed and some saying these are not the words and the works of a man who is demon-possessed. And this is now the third time John is reminding us that there was a division among the people. Nobody agreed about Jesus. It is not an overstatement to say that Jesus of Nazareth is the most divisive figure in human history. The most divisive figure in human history. His words and his teachings were not intended to unite everybody. His words and teachings were not intended to get everybody to gather around them and say, Oh, that's nice. Let's just everybody have a big group hug around some central truth. Jesus knew that. His words were divisive. It divided the nation of Israel. It divided the crowds. It divided the people. Some people thought he was nuts. Some people thought he was demon-possessed. Some people thought he was God and worshipped him. People were divided. That is what the truth does. The truth always divides believers from unbelievers. Now listen carefully. Truth does not divide believers. Truth unites believers. But truth divides believers from unbelievers. Whenever the truth is faithfully preached and proclaimed unbelievers and believers must separate. Because truth divides the regenerate from the unregenerate. Those who embrace the truth from those who reject the truth. Those who love the truth from those who hate the truth. Those who love light from those who love darkness. It brings a separation and a division. And some people will see the truth claim and embrace it, and others will see that truth claim and reject it. But truth divides believers from unbelievers. But it is not truth that divides believers. In our day, we are sometimes told, because we live in a Postmodern and ecumenical age, sometimes we are told you need to minimize the truth, stay away from the truth, don't emphasize the truth, don't nitpick the truth, and whatever you do, don't preach the truth strongly because we want everybody to agree on everything that we can get them to agree upon. So we need to minimize doctrine because doctrine divides. Have you ever heard that? Doctrine divides? That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Doctrine does not divide. False doctrine divides. It's false doctrine that divides the church. It's false doctrine that divides God's people. In Galatians chapter 1, when Paul wrote to the Galatians churches addressing the false doctrine of Judaism among the Galatian churches, he said, I marvel that you are so quickly turned from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The word disturbing means to shake back and forth violently. And this is what false doctrine does To the church, it shakes it violently. It disturbs people. It disturbs fellowship. It disturbs unity. If there were no false teachers and no false gospels and no false doctrines and no doctrines of demons, there would be no division in the church because we would all unite around the truth. And when there is division in the church, it is because false doctrine has been allowed to be believed and practiced by people. It's not doctrine that divides. It's false doctrine that divides. The truth unites the people of God around the truth. False doctrine divides the people of God, but the truth divides believers from unbelievers. And that's what we have happening in John chapter 10. There is a reason that these people were divided over Jesus. And it is because Jesus had just presented to them a truth claim which was monumental. It was a truth claim that required that men either embrace it or accept it. It is not as if Jesus had just given a lecture about the technological advances in Middle Ages metallurgy where people could kind of listen and say, oh, that's very interesting. What's for dinner? What's on TV? Jesus has just said that He and the Father are involved in an enterprise of saving the sheep that the Father has given to Him. He has just claimed to know the Father, to love the Father, to have a special relationship with the Father, to have been sent by the Father, to have been given a love gift of a group of people that He was going to save. He has just claimed that He was going to sovereignly and independently and voluntarily lay down his life to save his sheep, and he has just claimed that he would voluntarily and sovereignly take up his life and live again. You cannot listen to what Jesus has just said and not have an opinion. Everybody listening would realize they had strong opinions about what he just said. Because the truth claim itself demands that you make an assessment of it and that you come down on one side or the other. Considering the claims he has just made in John chapter 10, you have to say, I will either embrace this, and accept this as true and bow my knee to it, or I will reject this as falsehood and declare him to be an insane demoniac. Those were their two options. Because the truth claim itself demanded a response, and so people naturally fell into two camps regarding who Jesus was. And this division occurred among the Jews. Those are the religious leaders, the Pharisees. That's the term that John uses to describe Uh, the religious leaders who were typically hostile to Jesus, it's the same Pharisees, remember mentioned back in chapter 9, verse 40, when they said to him, we're not blind also, are we? And Jesus said, yes, in fact, you are blind. In fact, you're so blind, you can't even see that you're blind. And then he gave him the Good Shepherd Discourse, and the Good Shepherd Discourse was not addressed to sheep. It was addressed to the false religious leaders of the nation of Israel. We are the beneficiaries of all the truths of the Good Shepherd Discourse, but it was a reproof of them. These same Pharisees that were there in the temple with the man born blind have heard all of this and now they are dividing into two camps, two groups. One says he is demon-possessed. The other says that he is uh, that these are not the words and the works of a man who was born demon-possessed. One thing that you and I can learn from this is that when presenting the gospel to anybody, we must confront them with the truth claims of Jesus Christ. Our goal is not to get them to agree with us on everything, and our goal is not to trick or lure them into the kingdom. Our goal is to present the truth claims of the gospel, And of Jesus Christ and then say now you must decide whether this is true or not true you can't say it's true for me given what Jesus says it's either true or it's not true I had an interesting encounter with a man who was a Hindu a couple weeks ago and I've shared this with a couple of you shared this with the youth this was kind of a very instructive little encounter that I had this guy was fascinating he's the type of person that I can a fascinating young man a guy I could spend days with or weeks with just talking because he's A guy I hit it off with well. But we got talking about spiritual things. Come to find out he comes from a Hindu background. Not a culturally Hindu background. We're like, okay, my great-great-grandfather was a Hindu and my grandfather, but we really don't practice that anymore. No, the type of Hindu background where they put idols on the shelf and put little pieces of food in front of the idols and bowed down and worship. I mean, serious, idolatrous Hindu background. He left all of that when he turned 18 and left his family. He left all of that behind and started reading the New Testament. Became fascinated with the sayings of Jesus. And he quoted some of them to me. He said, I'm impressed by what Jesus says, like quoted some passages from the Sermon on the Mount, quoted some passages from the Gospel of John, and he said, I think Jesus is out of this world. And he was a great moral teacher, a great man, some of the things that he said, I have a hard time living up to them, but it's great ideals. And so then I asked him, I said, who do you think or who do you say that Jesus is? Well, I would say he's the Son of God. I said, by Son of God, do you mean God the Son? Do you mean that he was God who was the son incarnate so that he's God in human flesh. And he thought about it for a moment and he said, no, if you put it that way, God in human flesh, I, I would say he wasn't God in human flesh. So I said to him, now, given what you have just, you just quoted from the Gospel of John. It said, in, in John's Gospel, Jesus claims to be the I am. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And they crucified him for claiming to be God. And the Jews understood exactly what he was claiming. So Jesus took Old Testament names of, Of God and applied them to himself. He claimed attributes of deity, uh, claimed knowledge of deity, claimed uh, abilities and powers of deity. And I said the Jews uh, understood that he was claiming to be God. So in the Gospel of John, which you just quoted, Jesus was claiming to be God. Now, here's the choice you have to make. Either what Jesus said is true and he is God, or what he said is wrong and you ought not to have any kind of high regard for him whatsoever. Now the purpose of doing that was simply to show him that his high opinion of Jesus was untenable given the fact of what Jesus said about himself. Because our job in evangelism or sharing the gospel is to confront people with the truth claims of Jesus. Here is what Jesus said. Here's what he meant by what he said. Now, what are you going to do with that information? And I went ahead and I explained to him why Jesus had to be God because we had needed somebody to pay an infinite price for our infinite sin death and it, a sin debt. and it had to be an infinite person who would die an infinitely valuable death to pay the infinite price for my sin. So he couldn't be just a good moral teacher. He couldn't be a high idealist. He couldn't be a normal man. He couldn't even be a divine-ish type being. He had to be God in human flesh to bear the weight of my sin, which is, was, is of infinite and infinite debt. And so I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him, and I left him with that. Given what you say about Jesus, that you have a high regard for him, then you must regard him as God, because that is what he claimed to be. Jesus knew that his claims would divide people and divide family. He said in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, but I, came, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 said, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma of death to death, and to the other, an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul says, to the the one who is perishing, the knowledge and proclamation of Christ has the scent, the putrid, stenchy scent of death to it. But to the one who is being saved, the proclamation of Christ has the sweet aroma of life to it. It's the same message given to two different groups of people. And this is the division that we are talking about. Some will repent and believe and embrace that truth. Others will reject that truth and turn from it. But every proclamation of the truth has to let the chips fall where they may and say, this is the truth. This is what Jesus said. And naturally, it will divide people. And you and I should not be concerned if people are divided by the truth. Because the truth can only divide unbelievers from believers. It unites sheep. And it divides unbelievers from believers. So let's look now at these two groups. This is two groups. Oh, one last thing. An application of this principle. Let me give you an application of this principle. And this should be patently obvious to us. Anytime the truth or the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, it, it will naturally divide believers from unbelievers. That's, that's the principle. Now here's the application. You cannot faithfully proclaim the truth and unite believers and unbelievers at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive things. Now, this should be patently obvious to us from everything we read in Scripture. But listen, there's a whole philosophy of church growth and church marketing that says that the goal is to get unbelievers and believers in the same building and get them to agree on the most minimalistic of truths and then present a message that offends nobody and unites all of us, believers and unbelievers. That is patent unfaithfulness to the calling of God. You cannot do that. If you are going to faithfully proclaim the truth, then either unbelievers will become believers or unbelievers will leave because they don't want to hear it. So you have to proclaim faithfully the truth. Now look at these two groups. They're divided into two groups. The response of the first is given in verse 20. The response of the second in verse 21. Here's the response of the first. Verse 20. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? The first group called him demon possessed. Now this is not the first time in John's gospel that they have called Jesus demon-possessed. In fact, this was not the first time in Jesus' life that he was called demon-possessed. On three other occasions in the Gospel of Matthew, which are not paralleled in John, so that means six different occasions total, just between Matthew and John, Jesus was called demon-possessed. Or they said that Jesus did what he did and said what he did because he was under the power of Beelzebub. Like the unforgivable sin where Jesus cast out demons, and they said he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, which was Satan. So he casts out demons by the power of Satan. That was an that was a implication that he was demon-possessed, but they were saying that he was doing what he did by the power of darkness, by the power of the kingdom of darkness. There are two other occasions in John's Gospel where they said that Jesus was demon-possessed. One of them is again back in chapter 7, verse 19. You can look there if you would like. This is Jesus discussing with the Pharisees, uh, confronting them. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. And then look at John chapter 8, verse 48. This is the the second account in John's gospel where they accuse him of being demon-possessed. This is after Jesus has told them, You're children of the devil, you're slaves of darkness, and you're slaves of sin. And he says in verse 47, He who is of God hears me, hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you're not of God. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So those are the two other occurrences where the people, the crowd, or the leadership charged him with being demon possessed. Now here's something interesting about John's gospel. The word demon only occurs on three occasions in John's gospel. All three times the word demon is used by the opponents of Jesus, the leadership of the nation, of the crowds, to accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. Because in John's Gospel, there are no demon-possessed people, then there are no exorcisms. So the three times that John uses the word demon, all three of them are used of Jesus by his enemies. Now that is a stroke of irony for this reason. The only three times it's used, it's used to describe Jesus. That makes that charge stand out in John's Gospel. And it is very ironic for this reason. The Jews claimed to be a people who knew the holy and righteous and true God and to serve the holy and righteous and true God. And then when the holy and righteous true God walked among them, what did they say about him? You're demon-possessed. And all three times the word demon is used, they're using it of Jesus. I cannot think of a more vile, a more untrue, a more blasphemous statement to make regarding Jesus Christ than to suggest that he had a demon or did what he did by the power of darkness. But this is what the religious leaders did. And I want you to notice, it is not an argument against what he has done. They do not deal with the claims that he has made. It is what we call an ad hominem attack. An ad hominem attack is an attack against the person. They don't evaluate his claims. They don't test him against scripture. They don't evaluate what he says in light of Old Testament truth. All they do is throw out a blasphemous charge against Jesus to discredit him. It's ad hominem. It's not dealing with what he has said. It's just attacking the person. It would be like when you make a principled, logical, rational argument uh, against a sin, say uh, homosexuality or abortion, and someone calls you a bigot. They don't deal with what you said. They say you're a bigot. You're a hater. That's an ad hominem attack. It's an attack or a blasphemy, uh, an ill-spoken statement against the person rather than against the argument. That's all they got. These these men are like a bunch of fourth graders bested on a playground in an argument, and all they can do is say, oh, yeah, 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 you too, and they just throw out accusations against Jesus. It's slanderous, it's horrible, but look how inane and silly and stupid it is. Given what he has just claimed, the best they can come up with is he has a demon. And they slander not only him, but any who would listen to him. If if you listen to the sayings of this demon-possessed insane man, what does that say about you? You must be just as insane if you're going to give him a hearing. And so they slander not only the Lord Jesus, but those who are willing to give him a hearing as well. There must have been some in that crowd that this first group knew was willing to give Jesus a fair hearing. And so they're slandering them, Jesus and them. If you listen to him, why, why would you listen to him? He's demon possessed and he is insane. A couple of things I want you to notice here, friends. If they blasphemed Jesus in this way and slandered him in this way, You ought to expect and anticipate that the world is going to say the same thing about you. If they hated Jesus, they will also hate us. That should be a given. If we are not of the world and he is not of the world and they hated the one who is the truth, they are going to hate anyone who proclaims the truth or stands for the truth or witnesses to the truth or speaks the truth. You ought to anticipate this type of slander. If they slandered Christ, they will slander those who belong to Christ. And you ought to expect it. So don't be surprised when people say all kinds of nasty uh, things against you for the sake of Christ. When people persecute you verbally and say horrible things about you, you ought to anticipate that. In fact, when it happens, you ought to say, all right, that was good. In fact, I would like to have a little bit more of that because it means something good. It means that if they hate me, if the world hates me, it says something good about me. If the world loves me, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. I think we as Christians, and I've kind of implied this in, in recent weeks, I think we as Christians in this country are entering into a period of time which is going to be very interesting because you can already see the cultural shift changing and the attitude towards Christians and Christianity and the truth. Friends, it is, it is radically changing and it's changing quickly. And the hostility towards Christians in our culture and in our land is going to increase in velocity and mass like a freight train, and it is coming because we are persona non grata in almost every venue of our culture. Things will not go well for truth lovers in a culture that loves lies and hates the truth and is hell-bent on expressing their iniquity in every conceivable way and defending that iniquity and promoting that iniquity and seeking approval for their iniquity. It will get worse, and we need to be ready for that. And seeing what Jesus went through, you and I should be able to say, I'm ready to man up and take my blows. I'm willing to man up and stand for for Christ. It's either that or the whole thing, your whole witness and testimony crumbles like a house of cards and you deny your Lord. That is, I think, the point that we're going to be forced to in the weeks, months and years ahead. Barring a supernatural revival in our land, which is what I pray for. But things are not trending well. We need to be ready for it. And we need to understand if they slandered him, they will slander us. A second thing you ought to notice here in this passage is the deceitful wickedness of the hardened heart of man toward the truth. Do you notice this? They have listened to, I think, one of the most gracious sermons they could have heard. Loving, gentle, and kind, that this man would be willing to love his sheep, to die for his sheep, to save his sheep, to deliver his sheep, to do all of that in obedience to the Father, to live in perfect obedience and to do what the Father has called Him to do on behalf of all who will trust in Him. What a gracious and loving and kind thing for Him to say. And how did they respond? The same way that sinful, wicked hearts always respond to the graciousness and kindness of God with hostility and blasphemy. And you and I ought to remember, before Christ, this was us. Remember that? Maybe you were too young. I remember it. Before Christ, this was you. How many times did you blaspheme God's name in spite of all of his kindnesses to you and his graciousness to you? How many times were you ungrateful and not respond with gratitude and love and affection when God lavished his grace and kindness upon you? That's the heart of these Jews. That was the heart of us. That's the heart of all men apart from Jesus Christ without the grace of God. It is bitter. It is hateful. It is hardened. It is deceitful. It is wicked. And it blasphemes the good name of God in the face of his many benefits and blessings. Now look at the second group. The second group is in verse 21. Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Now they are, we wouldn't call them believers. And we're going to get to this in just a second. These men are not believers, but they are more what we would call level-headed and balanced and even-handed than the first group. The first group said, he's a demoniac. The second group looked at the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus And I would suspect that men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were in this group. Now that's speculation, because Nicodemus is not named in the text. But Nicodemus has already come out with the same approach in the end of chapter 7. Our law does not judge a man before it hears him, does it? And now this certain group, and I suspect it was a smaller group among the Pharisees, said, No, no, look at his words and look at his works. First, evaluate his words. These are kind words, gentle words. A man who is demon-possessed, we would expect him to revile and blaspheme and curse and and, and say things harshly. But his tone and his kind words and his compassionate words, these are not the sayings of a man demon-possessed. You can look at a man demon-possessed and realize that he reviles God. He doesn't speak kind things about God. Satan and his emissaries are not concerned and not interested in saying good and kind things about men, And God and that's what Jesus has done so the second group said these are not the sayings of a man demon-possessed we might know somebody who's demon-possessed we would expect ranting and reviling and blaspheming and raving and lunacy but this is a measured man these are intellectual words this is a serious tone these are compassionate things this is loving and gracious these are not the words of a man demon-possessed and second He does not do the works of a man who is demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of a man born blind? Which blind man are they talking about, by the way, here in chapter 10? They're still talking about the man born blind who, listen, in their very presence just minutes ago, bowed down to worship Jesus. So here's a man standing in their presence who now has sight, and he is proof positive that Jesus is a miracle worker. And the Jews believed that Giving sight to the blind was a unique miracle that the Messiah would do and a unique miracle that only God can do. So here is evidence in their very presence that says that Jesus of Nazareth cannot be a man demon-possessed because demons can do supernatural things, but they can't make blind men see. Only God makes blind men blind, and only God makes blind men see. So if Jesus can make a blind man see, then he must be who he claims to be. Now keep in mind that this is not a confession of belief you catch that what they're saying is not what we believe to be true about jesus but what we believe to not be true about him what is true of jesus they might say we don't know we kind of remain undecided on that but this thing we do know he can't be demon possessed they can rule that out they know that this is not the these are not the words of a demon possessed man these are not the works of a demon possessed man who is jesus of nazareth they don't say, they don't say any positive confession about him. This is not a confession of belief. This is simply them saying, look, we can rule out one thing that he's demon possessed. We know that that's not true. So it's level headed and balanced. And here's what I love about how John does this. John just tells us what the response is, and he leaves it out there, kind of hanging. You notice that? One group said this, one group said that. John doesn't comment on either response. He just puts them both out there as if to confront us with the very same choice that these men had to make. Now, what do you say about Jesus of Nazareth? Given what he has said and given what he has done, who do you say that he is? And these are the two responses that John gives us. Some said he's demon-possessed. Others said, no, he can't be demon-possessed. And there was a division as to whether or not what he did was inspired by demons or not. I think it would be safe to say that given what we read here, we cannot say that anybody who's mentioned here in these two groups was were believers who were born again. They just simply are divided about the power by which Jesus did these things. Now, you and I are confronted with the same decision today, and he, and here it is. Given what Jesus has said and given what Jesus has done, who do you say that he is? He claimed to be God. If he is not God, then listen, dismiss him. Walk away from him. Ignore him. Leave this church and never enter another Christian church as long as you live, because the whole thing is nonsense. The whole thing is nonsense. He was either a lunatic or he was the worst of deceivers and a liar. He was either out of his mind or he was intentionally deceiving people. Those are your options. But if he is God, then there's only one response that is appropriate. You must bow the knee in humble surrender, love, and obedience to this one who claimed to be God and the Savior of all who will believe in him. So that's how John leaves it. What is your response? You only have two choices. You either trust Jesus Christ or face Him as judge. Those are your two options. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to You for what You have done for us in Christ in delivering us from our blindness and our love for darkness and our hatred for the light. It is all Your grace and goodness that has done this. And the responses of people to Your Son and what He did, as blasphemous as they were, are instructive to us and challenging to us. We thank you that Jesus is not a deceiver, that he was not a lunatic, but that he was God in human flesh who died to save us and deliver us from your wrath and to give us eternal life. We thank you for Christ and his work for us on the cross. We thank you for the blood that has atoned for our sin, and it is our joy and our privilege to bow the knee before you in humble surrender, to claim Christ as our own, and to gladly worship and love him because of what he has done and for who he is. We thank you for these things and these reminders this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.